My guest today is Eric Strand, a COO of Drury Hotels. Eric saw firsthand the impact of COVID on the hospitality industry and wanted to do something about it. He set out to raise money for frontline hospitality workers by running the Katy Trail, a 240-mile rail trail that spans the entire width of Missouri, which he completed in three days, averaging about 80 miles per day. Eric has completed numerous marathons, including the Boston Marathon, 10 years in a row, and the Leadville 100, a 100-mile ultra-marathon through the heart of the Rocky Mountains. He takes the lessons he's learned from running and applies them to his leadership position at Drury Hotels. Join me as we talk about work-life balance, running, leadership, fatherhood, and so much more. Without further ado, Eric Strand. Going out and doing 50K is that's kind of mind blowing to me. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. I think um, we have a really similar story in terms of where we started our running journey because I know you got started at, at 39 years old. What made you want to start running at 39 years old? I had always been a runner. It was pretty active, like through junior high and high school, not so much in the the regular sports, but just with around the neighborhood. Kids were always get together and put together ball games and just very active and going through school, going through college. I never ran part of the, the team or club, but always just enjoyed getting out there and getting a few miles in. And would have no problem going for a couple, three weeks without running and then go out and do eight or 10 miles. Not necessarily all that fast, but I've always enjoyed using that time to get into my head a little bit and do a little Zen time or some thinking or problem solving or just to let your mind go wherever it wants to go. And I've always enjoyed that part of running. I am about 6'4", 175 pounds, but in... When I turned 39, I was the first time in my life where I was pushing almost 200 pounds. And I was, okay, I can see where this is going if I don't get a little more serious. And I just finished up an MBA program and found that I had a lot of time on my hands. And I always wanted to do a marathon. I can remember back to, I think it was 1972, when Frank Shorter won gold in the Olympics. And I remember watching that at that age and just thinking, I can go out and run a mile or 100 yards and run fast. Why can't you just do that for 26.2 miles? Didn't look all that tough, but it captured my imagination as I started picking up my distance, started to realize that there's really a lot more to it. At the age of 39, I just decided if I'm going to do it, I better start now. And I thought it would be just a one and done, but I signed up for a, a marathon up in Duluth, Minnesota called Grandma's Marathon. I grew up in Minnesota, so that was a big marathon in the state and went out and did it. I think I finished in four hours and 14 minutes, which is not a a stellar time, but it was really more about just doing it and finishing. And I could still remember crossing the finish line to this moment. And it was certainly a life-changing experience and something I wanted more of after that. Yeah, it's amazing to think about how addictive it can be in in so many ways because it's addictive when you're doing it just because of that runner's high that you can get over the long distances, but then accomplishing something and and being able to say, man, I did that. I I finished all 26.2 miles and 
anytime you could check something off a list, like that feeling is so good and you want to move on to the next one and, and check the next one off. So you get your MBA and you run your marathon. Um, and then you decide that at that point, is it something where you wanted to do longer distances or were you kind of content doing marathons? The marathon was a big enough challenge. And just a second to go back to your comment on the runner's high, for anybody that's listening to this that might be a, a new runner, I don't want you to expect that runner's high is going to show up every time you walk out the door and <laughs> lace them up. Uh, in my experience, it's maybe one or two out of 10 runs where you know things click and it really feels great. And the rest of it is is work to a certain extent. But with that said, I've never gotten done with a run and been uh, upset that I went and did it. I've always felt better after a run. But getting back to the question on the marathon, no, I think, uh, again, I went into the first one thinking this would be one and done, but enjoyed the experience. And, And not even just so much the marathon itself, but the process of preparing for the marathon, I liked the discipline of having to put the time and effort in and go down to the track and do the speed work, get the miles in, do the long run. And there was a cadence to that, that, that kind of discipline that I think just really hit home for me and I enjoyed. And I missed it once I got done with the marathon. So I signed up again for the same race the following year and got some faster time and then started doing two a year and then three. And then I got to the point where I had never thought at first that I would be in a position to qualify for running the Boston Marathon. But my time started to get better. And I started to realize that between me getting faster and also getting older, there were some benefits to the the qualifying time coming to me and I could meet it halfway So I started focusing in on uh, trying to get a qualifying time to run Boston, which is uh, for a lot of marathoners at the pinnacle. And I was eventually able to uh, get a qualifying time. I think it was up in Chicago. And it was, I think, on my 11th marathon. So it it didn't come easily. It took a lot of work. But having that out there, that carrot out there, was extremely motivating. And then go to Boston and try and improve your times and... So that really was my running journey up to that point. Getting into ultras was something I'd never really thought about up until, oh, I think it was maybe 2005, 2006. And that came about from reading a couple books, some of which you may have read. One was Ultra Marathon by Dean Karnazes. And another one was Born to Run, which is a story of this running tribe down in Mexico, but it interlaces with this crazy race out in Colorado up at uh, 12,000 feet called Leadville 100. And between those two, and then also running into Dean Karnazes, Dean's a good friend of mine now, but he came through St. Louis, I think in 2006, he was running 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. And once he got done with that, he was coming through St. Louis. We went for a run and uh, he was looking at my stride and he said, you got a pretty neutral stride, pretty efficient. Have you ever thought of running 100 miles? And of course, my response at that point was, no, that's nuts. But (laughs) it planted a seed. And over the course of the next couple of years, I started thinking more seriously about how epic that adventure would be of running a 100-mile race. and So that was how things got started uh, down the ultra trail. But I want to ask you, because ultra running takes so much time uh, in terms of the preparation, and it sounds like you really enjoy the process, you thrive in the process... 
but it's not like ultra running is your career. Uh, and one of the things that I've always um, got a question about, at least when I was training for my race, was, well, how do you dedicate that much time to training. And I'm curious to get your perspective on having a work-life balance when it comes to preparing for races, but also you're an executive at Drury Hotels. Uh, How do you balance that? First of all, it helps to have a very understanding and patient partner. So I'm fortunate. uh, My wife and I have been married for, I think, 37 years now. And she knows that this is part of me that's important and that I am, I think I'm a better husband, a better father when I can get out and get the physical exercise. So I I generally am in pretty decent spirits, but every once in a while, if there's an edge that shows up, she'll turn to me and say, you need to go out for a run. Number one, having that kind of support is huge. I think the other thing though is you can find time to do almost anything you want as long as you're choosing wisely. So uh, you end up giving some other things up and being flexible with your schedule. I don't watch a lot of TV. If I'm reading books, it's generally audiobooks while I'm out on the trail. And if work is such that I've got a 7 a.m. meeting, which I have a lot of, then the alarm goes off at 4 in the morning and I get it in early. So I think really it's just a matter of making a commitment and choosing how you're going to do what you're going to do. It does take a lot of time, but I think if anybody looks at how they spend time during the day and you are critical of how you're spending that time, you can always find the time to do what you want to do. The other thing too, I would say is, is you know, combining work with the running. Uh, I do a lot of traveling, but I think one of the very best ways to explore a town or a city or anywhere is on foot. You just get this visceral feel for how a, a city or a town works and where things are, how they lay out. And it's also a really great way to connect with coworkers. So you find these other people that want to get out and either run or hike if they want to do that instead. And you end up with the kinds of conversations that just don't take place uh, during the workday. So that's a really positive thing, I think, as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. It's it's funny because when I started running as I travel for work or in different areas, it almost shows me how small the world is in a way. And I don't know if you have the same experience, but when I, even at home, when I leave my house and just put my shoes on and just start going out, I think some of my training runs, my longest was probably 26 miles, but that was like 13 miles out. And there's something about going 13 miles out and coming back on foot that it's so freeing and it, and I don't know, it just makes you realize that there's so much more to the world than just the house you're in and the destination you're going to. Cause I think you really appreciate maybe the journey, but yeah, it just opens your eyes to so much more. Yeah. And I think once, once you've broken that barrier and running 20 miles for the first time or 25, it's also fun to get in the car and you drive 25 miles and say, Oh, I could have run that. So yeah, exactly. There's, there's something a little bit freeing about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So you say that you're better when you're running, or at least you feel like as a person or as an individual, you're your best self maybe after or when you've done something physical. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I think at times, especially when I first started training for marathons and putting the time uh, in on the on the roads and on the trails, there's something that felt very selfish about that. Meaning, this is this is completely for me, and you felt guilty about not spending that time with your spouse or your friends or your kids. But I think over time, what I've come to understand is I need that to be a better me for them. And once I've taken care of that, I think it allows me to more fully focus on other tasks at hand. You know, and I think as human beings, we were made to move. And when you live a more sedentary uh, lifestyle, I think you just are, you're missing out on, on so much. And the the psychological benefits, the, the endorphins that flow from whatever kind of run, whether it was a good one or a bad one, uh, psychologically, I think I think are a real positive boost. Yeah, I've always felt, and I like working out in the morning. I think it sounds like you do as well. I've always felt like if I don't get it done before work or before I'm doing whatever I'm doing, the entire day there's just something hanging over me saying, you still have to do something or you missed it. And and I feel like it's a distraction that's going on all day long if you don't put the effort in early enough. Um, and then you're distracted and, and you're not really fully engaged in the moment. So I can absolutely appreciate that mentality. I think it's if you're working and the whole time you're thinking, man, I, I got to go for a run later or I missed my run this morning, then you're not fully engaged with work. And the same thing with family and kids. If, if I don't get a run in or a workout in before I get my kids on the bus, then the entire morning, I'm wondering what time am I going to get it in now? I've already missed the window. I got to go to work and, and you're distracted and you're not really giving a hundred percent of yourself to them. And I think that's really uh, what's unfortunate. Do you have that same experience or feeling? Oh yeah, you'll be jonesing for a run, but there's certainly addictive issues uh, at hand, but I can think of a lot worse addictions. You, so you're the COO of Drury, is that right? Drury Hotels, we have about 140 hotels throughout the Midwest, about 25 states. Uh, we're based in St. Louis. It's a family-owned and operated company, and I've worked with them for 32 years now. And they're just a, a tremendous organization at the corporate level, at the hotel level. There's a really great culture and really good people to work with. And the hospitality industry is a fun one. It's a people business and lots of challenges. Every day is new and different. And we certainly have had some huge challenges in the travel industry over the course of the past year. So it's nice to get to a point where you start to see some light at the end of the tunnel and some things starting to turn around a little bit. Yeah. How has COVID affected? Obviously, travel has been restricted. And then there's different rules between states and in terms of crossing state lines and, and having to quarantine when you go somewhere. How difficult was it for the hotel given the last year? Well, to put it in perspective, in our industry, if revenue over the course of a year were to drop like 5%, that would be awful. That'd be a terrible bad year. In one month, in April of 2020, revenue uh, for the industry dropped about 85%. Just things went to a complete standstill. And those of us that had lived in the industry through 9-11 and through the financial meltdown of 08 and 09 and the dot-com bubble bursting, which all had a major impact on our industry, 
what we dealt with this past year was worse than all of those things combined and then multiplied by 10. Very challenging for the people involved in the industry, the uh, people that own hotels, the people that work hotels. And there was a lot of human drama that went on, a very difficult time. We were not immune to that. We're in a little bit better segment of the industry, I think, than some of the others. But for the most part, it's been probably one of the most challenging, certainly the most challenging year that I have experienced since I've been in the hotel industry. But here's the connection to a certain extent with the altar training is... What I was dealing with physically and being able to run 100 miles through the mountains or 115 miles around a track in 24 hours, all of those things, I think, helped me in many ways prepare to be able to handle leading our team through a very difficult time. So it was challenging, but it also forced you to use every single tool in your tool belt and work with your team to help make tough decisions and work at a level and with collaboration and camaraderie that I think we've never seen before. So the worst of times, the best of times to a certain extent. Yeah. Do you feel like the, I don't want to call it trauma, but the the experience that you guys were able to go through, do you think it's brought you closer as a team or have you grown um, as a an individual, as a company, as a team because of it? I think as a team, we certainly have, and as a company. And I think weak, time, weak teams, if you go hit tough times like this, it tears them apart. But if you've got a good team and a, a solid culture and a level of trust, something like what we went through actually pulls you closer together and allows you to eliminate any functional silos that may have existed before because all of a sudden it's very clear you're all on the same team you're all on the same ship together and you all got to be rowing in the same direction the level of communication went up tenfold and i think everybody walked away from all of this and so we're certainly not done with it but walked away from it with a higher level of trust and respect for the people that they they work with just got a, a really you know, great team that's even better today because of what we went through. Yeah, I'm interested because I work for a sales company. And during the time where we were all sitting at home and uh, not able to get out and sell, one of the things we were able to do were, it was unfortunate that the selling had to stop. But that extra time that we normally would have been spent running around with our hair on fire, we were able to focus on creating like stronger processes and education and programs to make us stronger coming out of everything. And I'll say our business and our company came out much stronger than we went in. And while revenue was down, I feel like our team was stronger. I feel like our business model was stronger. Are there areas that you guys had to pivot or change or work on? Maybe you didn't have people in the hotel that allowed you to come out stronger in the end? Sure. I think we're certainly seeing that now. And maybe not so much because of the process improvements and the changes, the things we had to pivot on so quickly, but maybe more so the fact that now we know whatever comes up, 
we have a better process for how we're going to work together and problem solve. Certainly, there's going to be vestiges of what we've gone through that we'll be living with for a long time. Just that your safety cleaning protocols are going to be different you know, everywhere. But I think more than anything else, it's just that we all understand that when we all focus in on a single goal and put all of our minds together on it and have the view from everybody's different you know, lenses, we can come up with better solutions faster and implement quicker, execute at a really high level uh, better than we ever thought before. So I think that's going to be the real benefit long term. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I'd imagine specifically at the level of employees that are working in the hotel on a daily basis, maids, cleaning staff, cooks, stuff of that nature, they were probably impacted at a, and I don't, I guess I'm curious more than anything, were they impacted at a more, not severe level, but were they great, were they more greatly impacted than maybe office staff? I think to a certain extent, because simply when you don't have any, you're not selling any rooms, you don't have hours for those team members. And that's one of the most challenging things. Now, so the, the good news out of all this was that the government did step up and provided some of the supplemental unemployment benefits, which really helped uh, a number of these team members who weren't getting hours at the hotel to get through and take care of their families. But that's only you know part of it. They're missing out on the financial benefits of not working at the hotel, but also people that get in the service business, they like what they do. They like people, they like serving others, and they don't get that psychological paycheck when they're not at work. So it was really twofold. And we're fortunate and happy now to start to see uh, those hours coming back and those team members coming back, not just from a financial standpoint, but just because they like the people they work with and they like serving others and making them happy. One of the amazing things that that I love is that you as a leader identified a need for the hospitality industry and you were able to leverage your interest, your talent in terms of ultra running to try to make a difference uh, for the people that you work with. And you decided that you were going to run um, from start to finish the Katy Trail, which is what, 245 miles uh, start to finish to raise money for the hospitality industry? The, the Katy Trail is, a, is certainly a Missouri treasure, but I'd say even more of a national treasure. It is the longest rail-to-trail uh, path that, that is, exists in the United States. And it runs from a little bit south of Kansas City to north of St. Louis from east to west to east. And I've run on the Katy Trail portions of it quite a bit in the past. It's a beautiful trail. And I've always had in the back of my mind the thought of it'd be really cool someday to run the entire 240 miles of the trail. And as we got into the depths of the pandemic and how it was impacting people that work in the industry... I thought this would be a really good time to meet a personal goal, but tie it in with something that was much bigger and put a spotlight on these people that are really being impacted both financially and psychologically and see if we can raise some awareness and raise some dollars. So I partnered with a group called Helping Hospitality and they have a grant aid program that was put together at the start of the pandemic where they were raising funds 
to get into the pockets of those frontline team members, the, the housekeepers, the people that prepare your food, as you, as you mentioned before, people that check you in. And they were tremendously helpful in being able to take care of the administrative side of being able to get the money to the people that really needed it. So my job was really just to run and get the word out. And so about three days before I decided to, I made a decision about three days before I started the run, pulled this together in very short notice, but it seems like it hit at a time where it hit home for people. And I was able to complete the 245 mile run in three days and I think 14 hours and six minutes or so. And we were able to raise uh, over $42,000 that went directly to those frontline team members, which was was very gratifying. So let me get this straight, Eric. (laughs) You decided three days before the run that you were going to run 245 miles? Yeah. And I think my (laughs) wife found out about it like on Facebook. So that probably wasn't the best way to break it to her. But (laughs) she, like most of the adventures, uh, whether it's running Leadville or doing a 24-hour race, I'll get a few eye rolls, but then she's like 100% in. So she was my crew. We drove out to south of Kansas City and she was up most of three days just providing support and making sure I had fuel and water along the way and making sure I was okay. Yeah, it was one of those where it's like, and like take a look at all the things that I've done that I feel good about. There's always been that point in time where you're wrestling in your own mind, should I do this? And I think what I've learned over time is that the risk reward is generally tilted in your favor. And those times when I'm wrestling with it, can I do this? Is this too big of a challenge? Have I bitten off too much? When I make that decision, generally it turns out for the best. And this was one of those times where I didn't know if I could run 240 plus miles, but you don't know until you, you try. And if I'd failed, I still would have been okay. I might've gone back and tried it again. But I think the real key is getting past that fear and making the decision to you know, to leap into it. And uh, there's just a lot of good things that happen when you do that, I think. And one of the, I guess, the important thing to take away from that too is you always have to be prepared because it's not, it's not like you decided to run 245 miles after or without having not run at all. You're constantly, and I, I see your social media, you're constantly pushing yourself and running a lot of mileage and preparing for other races. So it's like a constant preparation for you. Yeah. And I think that you're right. You got to pick the right goal. And that could be somebody deciding to do a 5K when the most they've ever run is a mile before. I think the way to figure out if it's a good goal or not is what's your chance of success. And I'd say if you got about a 60% chance in your mind of being able to do it, that's the kind of goal that will scare you, but also excite you. And it's very personal in terms of what that goal might be. And, and you want to do something that you're prepared to do, but you're not absolutely positive that you can do it. Uh, I think those kinds of scary goals are really a lot of fun. I love that. I love it. I want to know more about this race too. So it took you three days and about 14 hours to go 245 miles. What was it like for those three days? The trail doesn't change a whole lot. It's a rail trail. So the incline, the declines are, are pretty not 
massive, like 2% grade or something like that. You go through some beautiful country. It's the first time I've run the entire trail. Every step is new and I love exploring new areas. But certainly if you're going to go 240 miles, there's going to be highs and lows. And you end up dealing with some pretty massive blisters and some cramping and you're you know, fueling not proper at some times and you're, you're head out of it. And times when I was at about a hundred and between a hundred and 115 miles, we were going through the middle of the night along the, the Missouri river. And I was basically sleep running. I was hallucinating. I was so sleepy. I've never been so tired in my whole life. And you deal with those things and you think that you can't do it, but then get a couple hours of rest and all of a sudden it's okay, I can do this. And you're back in the game. And I think it was a really good lesson for me in understanding that when you have those low points, they're not going to last forever and you can't let the low point determine you know what you're going to do next. So I, I think going the 100 mile distance or 240 miles in this case, is a really good teacher uh, that if you are in it for the long run and you commit to the long run, that it makes those low points manageable to a certain extent because they won't last after you've dealt with after you've dealt with them. Yeah. So you did sleep. Like, how does that even work for three days? Yeah, the first stretch that I did was 115 miles, and that's the furthest I've ever gone before. I've done a 24-hour race where I did 115 miles. So every step beyond, but normally if you do a 24-hour race, then you don't do anything for the next week. You've left to a certain extent and, and eat all sorts of food and enjoy yourself and just try and get better. In this case, you get 115 miles done and you're not even halfway. You do have to catch some cat naps. I think I got three hours of sleep at that point and woke up a new man and was able to you know, get back out on the trail again. And so I had, I think, three different times where I took cat naps of three hours, one hour, four hours. I, I probably got close to eight hours sleep the entire time. And I think, not that I would ever do this again, but if I did, I think I could even get by with less than that. That's amazing to think about, especially when you're saying that you were sleep running and hallucinating. What's that? What's going through your head? What is sleep running and hallucinating? I was fortunate to have my friend Dan Turpin, who's been a pacer of mine at many of the ultras, was with me. And it was good to have help because I'm swerving all over the trail. There's sections you'll go through where you just don't remember anything. And then other sections where you'll see a building up ahead or a gas station and it turns out to be trees. So yeah, just a very bizarre lack of sleep-induced state that you end up going through, which I wouldn't recommend to anybody, but it was interesting. I think when if you can do ultra marathons, you probably don't need drugs. I mean, if you're getting into that state of mind, that's probably what drugs do anyway, is to get you (laughs) out of reality and into this hallucination world. So that's probably the healthier, yes or no, healthier or not way to get into that state of mind. I guess you could argue both sides. But um in terms of like food, because I know one of the things that a lot of ultra runners say is it's, it is a foot race, but it's also an eating race. And I realized when I ran 50 kilometers, how important food and sustenance really was. Running 245, what were you doing to fuel yourself? First of all, it, it has to be something you work at. And I'm sure you realize that too at 50K is that you're going to get to a certain point where nothing sounds good and you really don't want 
something in your stomach at all. But you just have to develop the discipline of realizing that over the course of the case of 240 miles, or you know, when I take a look at Leadville, that's 100 miles, and the, the calories you burn are equivalent to about 60 McDonald's cheeseburgers. And your body, you're going to run out of the glycogen that it burns and you're going to be burning fat. And at some point, if you don't fuel yourself properly, your body's going to start to eat itself and eat protein. So that's probably good motivation right there to make sure that you're just constantly taking in the gels or what I've found is that really after 50 miles, I'm so sick of the gels. I need solid food. Generally, I find that from 50 miles on, eating real food and my favorite is probably cheeseburgers. We just have a, it sounds terrible. And, and I wouldn't recommend those as part of your regular diet. Other than the fact when you're out doing an ultra, you've got protein, you've got lots of fat, you've got uh, carbohydrates, and you've got lots of salt. All of those things you need to keep fueled for the, those really long runs. Like, yeah, it's just the discipline of taking stuff in constantly, even when you don't want to. Yeah, it's in a way too, it's almost a metaphor for life. The good things that you're supposed to be doing or the things that are going to fuel you to keep going. And while you might not want to do them, deep down you have to, and you also know what's going to happen if if you don't. So I think that's that's a powerful way to think about it, really. It, so would you say, obviously it's the longest you ran. Is, that, is, is running the Katy Trail the hardest run you've ever done? No, I don't think so. And I... I would say the the 2014 Leadville 100 Ultra Marathon was the toughest race I ever had, and in large part due to my clumsiness. I, I had run the race the first time I ran it was 2012, and for those of the for those that are listening and don't know what the Leadville 100 is, it's a 100 mile trail race that runs through the mountains of Colorado. It starts at 10,200 feet. You max out at 12,600 feet, a couple mountain passes to go through. And at 12,600 feet, you have about 40% less oxygen than what we have at 500 feet where I live in St. Louis right now. So it's a huge challenge that less than 50% of the people that start the race will finish it in the 30 hours that are allotted. So I had run it for the first time in 2012 and I, I finished and your big motivation for finishing is that you get this 100-mile buckle that's about as big as a hubcap, and that's enough to motivate me. And so I did it in 2012. I, I got a better time in 2013. In 2014, I was thinking, okay, at, at, if you finish in 25 hours, they give you this really big buckle. And so I went out really fast. And what happened is I just really went probably beyond my abilities. And in the first six first 20 miles of the race, I had fallen six times. I had busted ribs. I'd busted my nose, skinned up my elbows and my knees. And from about mile 25 on, was really just looking for a way to quit. And I just learned a lot. I learned so much about myself and also the importance of surrounding yourself with the right people because I would not have finished that race if it hadn't been for some friends out on the trail and my family who all probably knew something more about myself than I did at that time. Yeah. So you say you wanted to quit 25 miles in. What's that feeling like? I would say that uh, it 
it comes on me and I think most ultra runners in almost every case when you get to about 25 or 30 miles and you start to realize that, wow, this sounded like a really great idea when I went to ultra sign up and I signed up for it. And when I was at the start of the race, surrounded by all my friends and all this excitement, and you get to that point where your legs are starting to hurt and your lungs are searing and your head's pounding and you just realize that this is going to be hard and it's hard every single time. And I, it's hard to keep your mind from going to that point where it starts thinking about, okay, how could I get out of this race? How could I quit and live with myself afterwards? And I've never been able to come up with a good answer to that query, but you just, you battle these demons in your mind for, you know, the next 75 miles, 70 or 75 miles. And you just have to trust that you can always put one foot in front of the other and that eventually you'll get there. And as long as you don't quit, that you can do it. I've run into a number of friends that have run that race and ended up dropping out like at the 50-mile mark. The 50-mile mark in Leadville is you've just gone over the toughest part of the race at Hope Pass. It's a climb up to 12,600 feet and a, a really steep descent. And all you can think about is, I just barely made it up that the first time. And now I got to turn around and go do it again. And it's going to get dark. And is this really worth it? And a lot of people will just punch out at that point. They'll take their bibs off and hand them to the officials and get out of the race. And while there might be some relief at that point, the very next day... I'll talk to them and they all are kicking themselves for letting those demons win. And I think that's the biggest challenge with the ultra races and probably for so many other things in life. I think it was Woody Allen said 80% of of winning is showing up or something like that. 80% of success is showing up. And like in the ultras and in so many other things, as long as you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you know, generally you get through the rough patches and there'll be better times ahead. Yeah. Do you have strategies or things that you say to yourself? Is there like an inner dialogue that encourages you when things start to seem like you don't want to be there anymore? It's funny. I've done it enough that when I start to get to that point, generally what I find myself doing is grinning. Hello, old friend. I know who you are. I know what you're trying to do. And it's not going to work. You're going to have to bring something stronger than that. It's gotten to the point where I look forward to that challenge. I know it's coming. I embrace it. You embrace the suck, smile, and realize that you know you can get through those tough times. I, I will say there's sometimes where tactically it'll just get to the point where you need to keep your mind off of what's going on. And I'll even get to the point where... You know, I know how many steps it takes for me to cover like a tenth of a mile or a mile. And I'll sit there for miles at a time just counting steps just to keep my mind occupied and, and keep the demons at bay. So it sounds weird, but it's, yeah, you find some little strategies like that from time to time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I noticed um, watching some of your videos that you're always smiling. And I was thinking to myself, man, like this guy either loves running 
or he loves the suck <laughs> or or he just has some sort of trick that's allowing him to get through this because I know a lot of runners talk about these demons and how they just creep in and it's it's a real pain and it's a real kind of mind game to try to get through that so it's interesting that you talk about grinning um, to help get over it but I'm curious because they these are big lessons that you learn about yourself and it's overcoming pain and overcoming struggle and continuing um through some of these struggles you, you do learn a lot and you learn not just about running but about yourself and just life in general and you gain perspective were you able to apply any of these lessons that you learned to your career, to management, to leadership, or even as a father? Yeah, two ways to look at that. I guess first as a father, I think that, at least in my mind, that example is a whole lot more powerful than lecture. And I I think all of my kids who watched me growing up, or them growing up, watched me doing these races, all thought that running was just the dumbest thing in the world. All of them have either run half marathons or ultras now. And I never really pushed them that direction. I say, find something. I think it's important to be active, do what you want to do, but you don't need to be doing the running. But I've got all the kids that have, I think, just from watching, have been curious and wanted to do it. I've got one, my son, Zach, who has taken it to a whole different level. And he's run Leadville with me and actually finished his first time. We've got another 50-mile marathon or ultra marathon that's coming up in May. And we've got two others that are coming up and he'll run Leadville again this year. I think from the family side of that, it's just really been setting the example that you can do hard things if you work at it. And they've seen the hard work that goes into it. And I think that's been helpful. Uh, on the work side of things, oh yeah, there's just so many parallels to running an ultra and uh, being in a, a leadership role or any role actually in work. And when I meet with our trainees, our management trainees, I actually share with them, I don't know what to call it, but I guess lessons from Leadville. And I, I talk about, we talk about these things that I've learned from either work or Leadville that are important for them to be effective leaders down the road. And it, it encompasses things like, number one, setting a goal that captures your imagination. It's got to be something that's scary but exciting. Wimpy goals don't motivate. And you've got to have something that you're not sure you can do that's going to force you to do the work to have the opportunity to maybe do it. We talk about surrounding yourself with the best. And as a manager, a leader they're only as good as the team they put together. And while that might not be the case if you're running a marathon, if you're running an ultra marathon, in my experience at least, it's really important to have the right support network. And I've been very fortunate, very blessed to have not only my wife, who is the consummate crew chief, but also some pacers like Leslie, my good friend Dan, my cousin Susan, who are outstanding. They understand how my mind works. They know when I'm struggling. They know when I need to eat. They know when they need to make sure that I stay on the trail, having that level of support. And they know when they need to push me. There's times when I wanted to quit when basically they wouldn't let me. And I think having people around you that maybe see something in you that you don't see yourself and can push you is really important. And just the, the lessons of relentless forward motion, the fact that it's not always going to be easy in your career or in an ultra marathon, 
But as long as you don't give up and you keep putting one foot in front of the other and don't give in to those demons that are trying to convince you that it's too hard or you're not good enough or it's not worth it, there's going to be good things that happen. The other lesson, another lesson from Leadville is just there's no shortcuts. So you can't cheat in this race. If you're going to finish in under 30 hours, you got to do the work. And that's a good leadership lesson, I think, too, that there's always shortcuts you can take, but it's never worth it. And we do things the right way for the long run. So those are, that's just a handful of things that we talk about. I, it's, I end up talking about it for about 45 minutes and just uh, relate what I've learned from ultra running and how the ultra running has, I think, helped me to be a, a better teammate and a better leader and how working in the business that I work in and the people I work with has actually, I think, helped me to become a better ultra runner too. So they flow together, if that makes any sense. I, I... Love the answer. I, I couldn't have said it better myself, obviously, but it was, it's great to hear that from you. Um, cause I think those are all amazing lessons and, and we could get into every single one of them, but I think you articulated those lessons so well. And I, I think that your, uh, the people you work with are, are fortunate that you've gone through that. And it sounds like you're fortunate that you have them to teach you the same lessons. That's, it's great to, I think anytime you do something difficult, it translates well into other areas of your life. And whether it be ultra running, whether it be any sort of sport or achieving any sort of goal, I think the experience of success breeds further success. And I think teams that work well can accomplish amazing things in in all areas of life. So that's... uh, I, I almost want to end it there just because it's so perfect. But I, I do want to ask you just a couple other questions that are fun and, and just to get your uh, perspective. But if you were able to go for a run with anyone that's ever been alive, past or present, who would it be and why? Oh, boy. That's a great question. There's Because the list would be really long. And I really I enjoy getting out with the pacers that I already have. So if I had to just choose one, I'd probably say uh, my good buddy, Dan Turpin. We don't, it's funny because we don't talk the whole way when we're out running. We don't need to, we have that kind of friendship and it's just good to have the companionship. But I'd say if it was somebody that maybe would be recognizable, I'd love to go out on another run, long run with Dean Carnazes. He's always been a source of inspiration and he's just a really good guy. And I would, I could learn a lot about ultra running and life from spending a, a few hours in the trail with Dean. Yeah. Who's the best runner you've ever ran with or against? The best runner I have ever run with, and there's a lot of different ways to define best. I would say, oh boy, now I'm trying to remember his, his name. And it just, it, he just, he ran, he ran across the United States in record time. And we ran together in Cape Girardeau at a 24 hour race for a little while and it just it's lost me sorry i i can't no, no worries who's been your biggest inspiration biggest inspiration i i probably would uh, go back and say my mother she I, if i got any grit or perseverance i think it's come from her she was a you know a single mom raising two boys and working full-time job night shifts as a nurse growing up and i just remember her never missing one single day of work during her career other than the time when she was in an auto accident. 
but the perseverance and the positive attitude are things that I think she just instilled in our DNA. Yeah, so there's one for mom. What's the most important lesson you want your kids to learn from you? Boy, getting that down to to one thing would be very difficult. How about three? Uh, I think I think respecting themselves by taking good care of themselves, stretching themselves, and realizing there's a saying at Leadville the the gentleman Ken Clover that started the race before every race he gets together with the runners and he will always tell you're better than you think you are you can do more than you think you can. And I think that's a great life lesson for my kids. Don't sell yourself short. Take some challenges uh, on. And again, the risk reward, I think, is tilted in your favor. Give it a try and, and respect others. I love it. No, I think it's a great lesson. And, you know, thank you so much for, for taking an hour with me to, to talk. I, I feel like I, you know, have learned so much just, uh, in this one hour, not only about you, but from you. I think you've got a great mentality and I think you have an awesome outlook on life. And Leslie said, you got to talk to Eric. He's the best. And, uh, she did not disappoint. This has been so much fun talking to you, getting to know you a little bit. And uh, I'm inspired by your journey. I think the stuff that you've done is amazing. And uh, I hope when, as I continue, I can accomplish things uh, the same way you have. Um, and, and maybe not the same races, but I hope that I can um, be the same type of leader. I hope that I can be the same type of father and inspire people uh, the way that you've inspired me. So thank you for you know taking an hour today to share your story with me. I really appreciate it. If people do want to find you, um, what's the best way to do Before I do that, I want to say a couple things. First of all, you've got a, a great story too. So I'm glad I found out a little bit more about that, Ryan. And I appreciate the time with you. I want to go back to who you asked me about the most, maybe not most famous, but best runner. His name is Pete Costum. That just popped into my brain. Sorry, I've missed that before. In terms of where to find me, a uh, number of different ways. My website is way out of date. I need to do some entries on there, but it's leadfeet.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at MyLeadFeet. And uh, I'm on Instagram at LeadFeet and Facebook as well, too. But uh, those would be the, the easiest ones, I think. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege. 